coming up on the Sark Fighter podcast. I remember, I, I remember sitting in the hallway after those appointments in a corner crying, thinking, is this it? This is really it? This, I can't believe this is it. This isn't going to be okay because I can't, I can't do all the things I love to do. Tracy Bottenheimer's heart was failing her. It turned out to be sarcoidosis. I didn't understand it at the time, but I know now that I was in stage four heart failure. Coming up, Tracy tells the story of being a mother and busy executive who had to give it all up after sarcoidosis entered her life. This is the Sark Fighter Podcast, living with sarcoidosis and other rare diseases. Here's your host, John Carlin. Hello and welcome. This is episode 25 of the Sark Fighter Podcast, brought to you in part by a grant from Atire Pharma. The official Sark Fighter song is called Zombie, and that song is sung by the White Hot Lizards. And Mark Steyer is a fellow Sark Fighter and a member of that band. And you can hear his story about how Sark took him off the ice as a hockey player. That was way back in episode 12. Seems like yesterday, but it's there. And Mark has graciously allowed Zombie to be the official song of the podcast. Proceeds from the song are donated to the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. And if you look in the show notes, there's a link to the song. Call this the Sark Fighter Podcast because I am fighting Sark. And so are you, whether you're a patient, a researcher, a caregiver, you're somewhere in the Sark world. And uh, so that's why I'm sure you're listening. I doubt we get very many casual listeners to the Sark Fighter podcast. But this is a place where all of us can gather together. One of the things that I hear over and over, especially as I've gone more public with my story, is that people reach out and say, Man, I felt like I was all alone. I thought I was the only one in this battle. I don't know anybody else with Sark. My doctor only has one other Sark patient. Sometimes I hear my doctors never had a Sark patient before me. And people don't know what to do. They don't know where to turn. They don't know uh, how to become engaged with fellow Sark patients. And so what? there's about 200,000 of us spread across the United States. So uh, that is one of the things that we do here is people come on and they tell their stories or folks come on and talk about some of the treatments or some of the ways that the foundation for sarcoidosis research can help. That's all here. It's all in the Sark Fighter podcast. And I do appreciate the fact that you're here. And most of all, what I want to let people know is that there is a reason for hope. And that's, that is what we hear over and over and over. Yes, sarcoidosis changes your life. Often it changes your life permanently, but there is reason for hope. There, is, there are reasons to believe that maybe we'll have a cure or at least better treatments. And, and you'll hear that resonating throughout the stories of the people who come on and share their stories and or the researchers and or the, the hard, hardworking staff at the foundation. So that's what the podcast is all about. Normally it comes out every other Monday and so far we've been able to adhere to that. Now, if you're new to sarcoidosis and you're trying to figure out what it's all about, um, 
We're sorry you're here, as I like to say, but you might want to listen to my interview with Dr. Simon Hart back in episode two. That is Sarcoidosis 101. What is it? What's a granuloma look like if you could hold it in your hand or look at it under a microscope, as it were, uh, non-casein granuloma? But at any rate, um, episode two with Dr. Simon Hart from the UK is a good one, and that still gets a lot of listens. Um, if you want to know more about me and my story, it's there in episode one, which is where I sort of started out. I didn't feel like I could have people come on and bear their souls if I wasn't willing to do that myself. So I've, I've shared my story in episode one. If you want to know the backstory as to how the foundation for sarcoidosis research came into being, listen to episode 11 with the founders. Andrea and Redding Wilson. Andrea has a, had a terrible struggle with sarcoidosis. And when, when she got it 20 years ago, there was no foundation. So she and her husband Redding started the foundation from their kitchen table. And now it's, uh, it is the leading uh, place to, uh, to fund research and, to, and for patient, patient outreach and all the great things that they do uh, with the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. Now, I will also mention uh, Atire Pharma, uh, presenting sponsor for the podcast. They have, uh, they have given me a grant, which has allowed me to uh, advance the cause of the podcast in many ways. But when I talk about hope, that's one of the things uh, that, that we really see is in, is in the research area. And Atar Pharma is one of those companies that cares about the SART community. They are working on a novel drug that uh, is now in stage two of clinical trials. And you've heard a lot about clinical trials because of COVID and so forth. But ATAR is working through uh, blind testing on a drug that will help um, SARC patients, uh, primarily pulmonary lung patients, uh, with sarcoidosis. And you can listen to my interview with Sanjay Shukla. He's the CEO of ATAR, and that is in um, episode 17. Now, uh, I've talked a little bit about the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research, and but uh, they do specialize in patient outreach and helping all of us cope with SARC, the medications, uh, the search for doctors, and the changes in, in our lives, and there's a whole side of, of the foundation that is focused specifically on that. And so they used to have what they called sarcoidosis ambassadors, and now that's become advocates, and there's, there's a smaller number. Uh, but when I sort of discovered the foundation and started talking about the podcast, they agreed to let me be an advocate. Uh, but there are other advocates or other SARC patients and they are available for you to contact and talk through your problems, maybe help you find a doctor, find out if what you're going through is normal or abnormal and address your concerns. And they will help you do that from the patient perspective. So um, if you go to the foundation and just search advocates, you'll, you'll find a list of advocates and they'll take your phone call. They'll talk to you. And uh, my job as an advocate primarily is the podcast. You certainly are welcome to send me an email, ask me any questions that you want, um, or just ping one of the other advocates that's listed. And, and of course, in the show notes, I'll have a link to the, to the advocates. And I am making myself a note to make sure that I include that. So, uh, and then before I get to my interview today, which I think you're going to love with Tracy Bodheimer, uh, I just want to bring you up to date because in the last podcast, I told you that I crashed my mountain bike 
and I went over the handlebars and landed in a dead tree with a bunch of broken off sharp branches sticking up and had a nasty gash in my leg as a result. And so it was um, it was awful. I'm not going to lie. It was awful. Uh, but it was mostly downhill from there to the car and the bike still worked. So I was able to ride a mile, mile and a half back to the car, take myself to the emergency room. And uh, they immediately, when they saw me, took me back and gave me a bunch of stitches, some internal, some external. And I've got now I've got this beautiful V-shaped scar just above my knee on my left leg. But the good news is, is that's that's all I've got. It's healing up nicely. I'm almost done with my second course of antibiotics and the stitches have been removed and yay for me. Uh, I am back on the exercise bike. I've even done a little ride on the greenway. And so lo and behold, um, I can still bike, which is my primary way of dealing with sarcoidosis. And that's why that's so important. Now, <laughs> enough about me. Uh, I do appreciate you listening. It's nice to have my wife is tired of hearing about it. Okay, so I'm pouring my heart out for you. Tracy Bottenheimer lives in Canada and Sark hit her seven years ago. Uh, like most of us, her story is one of initial denial. Mm, something's not right with my body, but if I just push through this, I'm stronger than this. I'm an outdoor person. I've been successful. I have a family. I have things to do. Uh, I've had struggles before and I'll just push through. And eventually, uh, and she and her family were very outdoor oriented. So she was a hiker and a kayaker. She was training for a half marathon. And, but eventually it got to the point where she couldn't even go up the stairs and so at that point, you realize, hmm, this is, this is not something that I can just push through. I can't be better. I can't eat better. Uh, I can't work out better. I can't get more rest. There's something wrong with my body. So then uh, she goes to the doctor, goes to the hospital, and her diagnosis, unlike most of us, came pretty quickly. Once she uh, got into the hospital, they did a biopsy. After a scan showed, I think she said it was a CAT scan, maybe it was an MRI initially, but they found a mass on her heart. And so they were able to get a needle in there safely and get a biopsy. And she was diagnosed straight away with sarcoidosis. So uh, that's the good news. You have a diagnosis. The bad news is you have a disease in a terrible place that is incurable. And the medicines that we use to control it are going to really jack up your life. And a lot of what she talks about in the interview today is everything that happened after she found out that she had sarcoidosis. And I think her story uh, it certainly resonated with me. I think it's going to resonate with you uh, because she's dealing with prednisone and then heart medicines that uh, are there just because she has sarcoidosis in her heart. So she has to go see, you know, all kinds of specialists. And But she was a super active, super successful woman. And, and you'll hear her talk about how the fact that she was a woman uh, I, made it more difficult for her because of, of her approach to life and the expectations of women. And I think that's, that's an important takeaway from this. So, uh, but for Tracy, eventually... There is and was hope, and I will believe you see that as she starts to peel back the layers of her diagnosis and then her journey over the last seven years. So coming up, my interview with Tracy Bottenheimer. I feel like a zombie 
Hi, I hope you're enjoying the Sark Fighter Podcast. You may be wondering, what can I do to help? How can I be a part of the sarcoidosis solution? It's simple. Make a donation to KISS. Kick in to stop sarcoidosis. 100% of the money goes to the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. Look for a link in the show notes of the Sark Fighter Podcast. Welcome back to the Sark Fighter Podcast. And joining me now is Tracy Bottenheimer from Canada. And uh, Tracy, welcome to the Sark Fighter Podcast. Thanks, John. It's really great to be here with you this morning. So um, now you are in uh, near Vancouver, is that correct? That's right. I'm on. I'm in Victoria, which is uh, just about 45 kilometers to the west of Vancouver on an island. Beautiful. That sounds like gorgeous country. It is. Yeah, we're so fortunate, especially during a pandemic. You can, you know, we have beautiful spaces to go outside and so that's helping a lot. Great, great. So let's talk about your battle with sarcoidosis. It started about seven years ago. Well, you told me seven years ago this week, and we are recording right before Christmas in 2020. Uh, how did uh, how did you first start knowing that something was wrong? Um, you know, 2013, looking back, there were a lot more signs than I realized at the time. I, uh, I started 2013 as a, a busy career woman. Um, I was a senior executive in a large company, and I was traveling close to 50% of my time, and our sons were 19 and 17, and they kept us really busy, and, you know, life was just ticking along really fast. I was, I was fit and healthy and um, had never really had any kind of interactions with the medical world other than sort of a routine annual checkup kind of thing. Um, and slowly there were little signs that I started to just chalk up to, you know, letting myself go is what I thought. You know, we were, we were in Mexico in April and I noticed that I was way more short of breath and, and bloated than everybody else. And it was enough that I sort of noticed and thought, oh, shame on me. I'm, I'm really, I'm really enjoying this all inclusive too much. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, but they, but it just kept progressing. So, um, you know, in, in August, we were hiking in New Hampshire. Uh, we were hiking Mount Washington, which is a 6,200 foot peak. And I did it, but I was a little more tired and I needed a little more breaks. And I was, I was pretty frustrated with myself, but again, I could think, well, you know, it's really humid out here and I'm in vacation mode and I'm eating chips and, you know, it's fine. Um, but, you know, by that fall, I was, I was struggling to go up small hills around town and, um, I think the final kind of straw, well, one of them was that we'd gone for a bike ride and just along the waterfront. And there was what I would consider a pretty small little hill. And I had to push my bike up it. 
And I remember sitting on the beach in tears, frustrated and so mad at myself thinking, this is ridiculous. I've just, I've let myself go and I'm out of shape and I'm just not eating right. And it just, you know, everything was my fault, I was sure. Um, and because I'd always had good health, I just assumed that I was in control of it and that I would have to fix it. Um, and so I just thought I need to push harder. And then of course, when you have a damaged heart, the harder you push, that's not, that's not the best recommended approach. So um, things just got worse. And I ended up, um, the big things were that I was, I was gaining weight. I was, um, I, I now, I was really bloated. So I now know I was retaining fluid. I was, I was really dizzy. I, in fact, I stayed home from work one day literally because I couldn't get up off the couch because I was so dizzy and it just seemed ridiculous to me I, I I had to make up a little story because I just thought I can't call and say I'm dizzy that doesn't sound right that doesn't make sense um and I I was having these episodes where my heart would just take off racing and at first it was just on exertion and so I thought that's where I thought it was related to fitness um, but then it was I'm sitting at my desk or I'm traveling on an airplane or I'm asleep and my heart is racing as though I'm running a marathon and um, so I started to get worried about that a little bit and uh, I but I did everything that I could to find some reason why it was something we could fix. Um, and so, you know, I, I remember talking to my massage therapist and saying, I'm, I'm getting these, you know, this dizziness and this racing heart. And, um, you know, so I think maybe something's pinched. You should look for like a pinched nerve somewhere. <laughs> and I remember him stopping and just saying, I think you need to go to your doctor. And that really surprised me because usually, not to stereotype, but usually, the alternate practitioners generally say, come back for another appointment. They don't say go to your doctor. So that threw me a little bit. Um, but then the big, the big thing came at the start of December. Um, December, 2013, I went for a walk with my neighbors, we often do. And there, there's a little hill near us. It, it only takes about 30 minutes to just zip up the hill and come back. And, and we liked it because it was, it was short and quick and we could sweat and do it after dinner, and, you know. And so we headed out and immediately my heart started racing. And as we were walking up the hill, I remember feeling like, all the blood is draining out of my limbs. That's how it felt. It just felt like I was, all I could do was focus on putting one foot in front of the other. And I was really dizzy and my heart was going a million miles an hour. And I was gasping for breath. And I remember thinking that I was, I was super embarrassed. I just thought this is, this is really shameful that I'm this out of shape. And so I made a big show of, you know, I, well, I have to stop to tie my shoe or I have to, you know, I, I'm stopping so that I can laugh at your really funny joke you just said. Um, I, I, I made up all these excuses to catch my breath a little bit. Um, but I knew by the time we got to the top and we were coming back down in my head, I was making a mental note thinking this isn't right. This isn't out of shape. This is 
a lot more serious. Um, and unfortunately, I was just preparing to leave for a two week um, business trip. So I thought, okay, well, as soon as I get back, I'm gonna make a doctor's appointment. It's time. So um, off I went on my travels and, you know, surprisingly, my cardiologist tells me that that, that walk up that little hill um, very well could have been my last walk. I was very fortunate to come back down off of that. Um, over the next two weeks as I traveled, it was, it was happening on the airplane. Everywhere I went, because it was December and I was in Cleveland and Toronto and Calgary and there were blizzards and so there were no cabs and I was walking and dragging my suitcase and feeling like I'm going to die. I just, my wow. heart was racing. Um, I was short of breath. I was exhausted. And uh, in fact, when I was in Calgary, after, after hiking through this blizzard, I'd phoned another coworker that I thought may have rented a car to see if he could take us to the, to the next meeting so we didn't have to walk. And he said, no, he, he hadn't. And so we had to walk. But then he said to me later, are you okay? Because you really sounded like you were going to die. And, and I, in hindsight, yeah, I, I, I really was that close. It was, it was not good. Um, wow. Wow. And, and so there was just this weakness. I, I can't, I, mean, I can't believe you just kept going through, through all of that. It sounds like yeah. kind of like me, you've, you've, you've got a little background and enjoying the outdoors in different ways. And, and like you say, you, you're, you're, you just try harder because it's your fault. And, and, and the person when you're doing endurance, whether it's hiking or biking is, you know, you, you, you just push through, that's the mentality. And so, but that was probably the yeah. wrong thing for you to be doing. So, so then you finally got to the doctor and what happened? Well, <laughs> I, uh, yeah, you know, when you, just, just as a little side step going backwards, as a woman in particular, it's really easy to put yourself last and to kind of deny what's happening and to be so busy trying to be everything to everyone and thinking, I don't have time for this right now, um, which was exactly what happened that weekend. I, I got home from my trip on Friday the 13th, which was probably the first bad omen. Um, and had uh, uh, so that the Saturday I had three hours of what I now know was ventricular tachycardia happening. Um, so really fast, irregular heart rhythms. On the Sunday, I, I, I had a plan in my mind. I thought, okay, I'm gonna call the doctor on Monday. So I know that the first thing he'll do is send me to have an ECG. So what I'm gonna do is go to the walk-in clinic on Sunday, get the requisition, go get the test done, call them for an appointment, and then only have to go to the appointment just the once and it'll all be dealt with. And that'll be much more efficient. And it, it makes sense because I don't have time for anything more. You must have been a good executive at whatever you did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, so I had this plan. So I was very happy with that. Um, so I started out on Sunday, went to the clinic, then I went shopping. And as soon as I started carrying my bundles around, my heart started racing. And so that was 
early afternoon. I had, um, so I had finished my shopping, wrap my presents, do a bunch of baking, um, have a family dinner, and then we were decorating our tree. And through this whole time, my heart is racing and I feel terrible. I keep sitting down and I'm, and so on top of it all, I'm just really mad now because I'm so frustrated at this body of mine and what it's doing. Um, and so by the evening, I was laying on the couch as the family was decorating the tree, feeling bloated and queasy and uh, dizzy and my heart was racing and just really feeling like I, I don't know I don't know what's happening but it, it's not good and I feel really awful and what shocks me and took me a long time to come to terms with is that I'm the one at at about 9 30 when our oldest son said he was ready to go home I'm the one that jumped up to say oh I'll drive him and knowing what I know now, that was, that was so incredibly dangerous for both the two of us in the vehicle and anybody else that I may have crashed into um, having a cardiac arrest. So um, I, it took me a long time to get over the guilt of having done that in my, you know, in my insistence that I was strong and in control when I really wasn't. Um, wow. Yeah, that, that was big. Um, so anyway, so the night went on, we went to bed. About 11 o'clock, I woke my husband up. Um, not really sure why, other than to just say, my heart won't stop and it's really annoying me and I can't sleep. And I, I just wanted him to know that. I, and I think really subconsciously, I knew it wasn't right and I wanted him to do something. Um, in my mind, I just, I just felt like, somebody needs to needs to know this. Um, so he started Googling right away and came up with the, you know, go to emergency if list. And as he went through it, I listened and, and at the very end, I was able to say, Oh, I don't have that last one. I don't, I don't know if we should go. <laughs> I don't have the last one. I've got all other 10, but not that one. Um, so anyway, he won, we went to the hospital. <laughs> And um, we arrived and, and pretty quickly things started to happen. So the nurse, um, the, the triage nurse couldn't get a clear blood pressure heart rate reading. It was really erratic. Um, so I, I only had to wait for a minute before they whisked me in. And um, pretty quickly they, they started to give me first two shots of something they called adenosine. Uh, which is a drug that basically sort of starts and stops parts of your heart. Um, and the, I was fortunate that the doctor on duty had enough experience behind him to know that um, this may or may not work, but it would give them some good baseline information to start from. So he did that. Um, and then, and then they had to cardiovert me twice. So that's using the paddles to sort of, stop and start my heart uh, with the defibrillator um, took twice in order to get my heart stabilized and um, and then check me into the critical care unit. Um, so I was in the, the cardiac critical care for the first week or so. Um, 
and the very first, the, the next day, well, it was the, the um, electrophysiologist came in and one of the first things he said to me was, you're not leaving here without a diagnosis, a treatment plan and an ICD, an implanted cardio defibrillator, mm-hmm. or you'll be dead sooner than later. So what I learned was that I was having life-threatening arrhythmias that I had less than a 1% chance of surviving. Wow. So at this point, they don't know what it is. They don't know it's sarcoidosis. They just know your heart isn't working. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so we began a, a whole series of tests I and mean, I was really, really fortunate um, because I had such extremely good care. In fact, one of the nurses said to me, um, do you know the, do you know the premier of the province? Because you're getting the million dollar treatment here. Um, cause I had every test imaginable. Um, and so, yeah, it only took them about four days, um, through, it was finally the MRI that led them to a biopsy of my heart that confirmed cardiac sarcoidosis. And it's the only place that I have it. Wow. So was it, uh, was it spread all through your heart or was it in like a heart valve or where was it? Um, is mainly on the right side of my heart. Yeah. Well, I shouldn't say that. I, I think it was spread throughout the heart, but the damage was on the right side. So um, they did it. They did an MRI and they, and they noticed the mass or the inflammation and, uh, and then were able to go in what with a, with a needle and biopsy that, is that how they did it? And then they, they found yeah. a non-caseating granuloma which is right. that's, that's what sarcoidosis essentially is. And how, you know, did they describe how big it was or how severe it was, or was there any way to quantify that? Um, probably the only idea uh, I had of, of the measure was really just in the fact that normally they wouldn't necessarily risk going in for a biopsy in a heart unless the granulomas were so obvious that it would be really easy for them to get a piece. Um, And that's what they had told me that, you know, there was certainly enough in there that it was not going to be hard to find a piece. Gotcha. Okay. So now they've got it. They know it's sarcoidosis, uh, but you still have a bad situation. I mean, now they've got it treated, I'm assuming they went with prednisone right away or what happened? Yeah. So they had to do, there's kind of two, two prongs to my treatment. Um, One was the sarcoidosis and one was the heart. And I didn't understand it at the time, but I know now that I was in stage four heart failure um, with these life-threatening arrhythmias. So Yes, they started me on, I don't even know in the hospital if it was more or not, but I know I left with 60 milligrams of prednisone as my prescription. And then um, in the hospital and continuing on for a couple of years, they they used amiodarone, which is a really powerful antiarrhythmia drug. Um, and it comes with a ton of side effects as well. It's in, in the arrhythmia world, it's probably similar to prednisone. <laughs> um, so you were taking both and 60 milligrams is a lot. 
Yeah. Uh, that that's enough to screw up your life all by itself. I speak from experience. So <laughs> yeah. So uh, all right, so let's let's fast forward just a little bit. You you leave the hospital what a week post diagnosis or how much longer and then how do you start reliving your life? Um so yeah, so I was in the hospital for 10 days. I had my ICD implanted on Christmas Eve and I was, and my husband was great. He came in and, and decorated the room and we were all set to have Christmas day in my room. And um, Christmas morning, my electrophysiologist showed up um, and said, don't tell anybody you've seen me. I just want to make sure you can go home for Christmas. And so he did the final checks and discharged me. And so I got home for Christmas day, wow. uh, which was awesome. Yeah. Merry Christmas. Yeah, yeah, that was awesome. And, you know, the first, so we got home and, and my cardiologist had done her very best to prepare me. She said, you're not going to like prednisone. You should probably expect to be off work for a year. And in my head, I just thought a year, that's madness. That doesn't make any sense. Um, I, I knew from the surgery that it would take, there was a six week kind of surgical recovery time. Right. So I could wrap my head around that. That seemed tangible. So I thought, okay, well, probably in six weeks, I'll go back to work. Um, and so I, at the time it was kind of just exciting and different. And I was kind of relieved to have this rest. I thought, I thought, you know, I, I'll be fixed. They've done all these things. So now I'll be cured and then I'll get back to work and that'll be normal. And in the meantime, I've been so exhausted that, you know, I used to dream about these days when, when I might take a sick day and stay home. So I thought, this is, this will be fine. Um, and for the first few days, my husband was off work and our kids were home and it, everything was fine. Um, I was just tired. And then, but then slowly everybody went back to their lives. My husband went back to work the boys went back to school and I was all alone all day and the prednisone started to kick in and <laughs> I just, I didn't know what was happening. And I, I found myself doing a lot of research and scaring myself and, and looking around and thinking, will I ever do that again? Will I ever do that again? Um, and, and just this uncertainty that settled in that was really strange. And I was so, so tired and so up and down emotionally. Um, it was a, it was a real struggle. It was really a struggle. Um, and in my mind, I just kept thinking, I'm just waiting to go back to work. It was just all about the waiting to go back to work. That's when things would be normal. I would know everything was okay. And, um, you know, I'm still not back at work. <laughs> um, oh, really? You never went back. No, no. Wow. So, um, I mean, I, I just want to jump in real quick. Yeah, so all yeah. you've said is that you were an executive, but I know that you traveled a lot. Um, what, what did you do? What field were you in? Learning and development. So I was the director of learning and development. Um, so I had a team throughout North America and in the UK. And um, so I traveled extensively to support them but also to our head offices, which were in Philadelphia and in Toronto um, and London. So I was always in meetings there as well. Hmm. 
So, so you've gone from world traveler to not working at all. Thank you so much, sarcoidosis. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, so you're in this sort of recovery phase um, with these drugs that have all these side effects uh, and you're home by yourself. So by this point, I guess your sons are what around, around 20 and you're probably in your forties thereabouts. Yeah, I was, I just turned 48 when I went into the hospital. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I, and so at the end of January, I had a one month checkup and um, this was kind of my first inkling that things were going to be quite different for me because part of it was doing a treadmill stress test. And so I went in with my very competitive perfectionist mindset and the technician said to me, okay, now, you know, we're going to put you on here and um, your doctor's really going to want to see what you can do. So I really want you to try your hardest and do your best. And um, in my mind, I knew the appointment was 30 minutes long. So I thought I have to be on the treadmill for 30 minutes. And then he said, and as you go, I'm going to increase the levels. And he didn't say how many levels, but in my head, I thought, there must be 10 levels. So in 30 minutes, I have to get to level 10. Got it. That's what I took away. So we started and um, pretty quickly, I didn't feel that great. Um, but I kept going as long as I could. I made it about nine or 10 minutes. And before I, I just had to give up. And I, I just my heart was pounding. And I was so out of breath. And I was really disappointed. And I, so he told me to go and lie down on the recovery cot. And as I, as I walked over, he was looking at the screen because I was still on the telemetry um, and he could see that I was going into VTAC. Um, and as soon as I laid down, um, then it was sort of just that timing where you, kind of that slow motion timing of him noticing I'm going into VTAC, turning his head just as my ICD is shocking me. Um, and so that was my first life-saving shock. And um, that's when I kind of knew this isn't going to be, this is going to be different now. Right. Yeah. Right. Wow. So uh, um, I, I'm just curious, what, how you said that was my first life-saving shocks. So that would suggest that there were those that followed. How often did, did or does that happen? Uh, it's only happened one other time. Okay. Uh, and that was in 2017. So I went a good long time without one. Um, they did manage to get me sort of stabilized. And, and um, you know, I, I went up and down and, and you asked what, what life was like afterwards. And, you know, it, emotionally, my mental health really took a beating and it wasn't something that I was expecting or prepared for. And um, so I had lots of ups and downs and I, I tried really hard to kind of work my way out of it. But in the middle of 2014, I started on antidepressants as an antidote to the prednisone is what the psychiatrist had said at the heart function clinic. Um, but I ended up staying on that for six years and there was a lot of ups and downs. Um, and part of that was just that uncertainty of still waiting to go back to work, still waiting to feel like my old self. 
Um, and, you know, I had, um, in 2016, I thought that I was ready to go back to work. I thought I felt good enough. I didn't feel like the old me, but good enough. Um, and within a month of starting to feel like, okay, it's going to be normal. Uh, I'm going to do normal things. Um, the sarcoid flared up. And, oh, you had a flare? Oh, wow. Yeah. And so by, by the fall, so this time I thought in my head, okay, I waited about six months with symptoms in 2013. And that was too long. I did a whole bunch of damage. So this time I waited about a month just to be sure. And, and sure enough, I went from, you know, being able to do a 10 kilometer hike to barely getting up the stairs from my basement in a month. And, um, I was in severe heart failure and the, um, cardiologist said to me, if we can't get the sarcoid under control, um, we're going to have to, you know, you'll have to think that one day you'll be on a transplant list and um, also a, a valve repair or replacement because um, everything was, the right side of my heart was collapsing. Um, my, I had a leaky tricuspid valve that they said was severe. Um, and I had been on mycophenolate after the prednisone and they, he said, you're, you're an MMF failure. So MMF is the, the shortened version of mycophenolate medical abbreviation. Um, so when he said, you're an MMF failure, I just thought failure, that's such a big word. That's, that's the end. <laughs> you failed. That's the end. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so that was really scary. And uh, so we went back on prednisone and we tried a little different approach with um, a little faster taper off of it. Um, and, but by the following spring, I could tell I was plateauing and I, uh, but I wasn't clinically evident. So the, the changes were really subtle, but I knew my body and I knew that things were not right, that I wasn't progressing anymore, despite still being on prednisone, right. but a low amount. And um, so I started to, every specialist I saw, and I have many of them, I, I would tell them something's not right. And I would hear, but you examine well, your numbers are good. Mm -hmm. No, you look good. Um, <laughs> And finally, one of them said, maybe you've plateaued. Maybe this is it. And, and then the last one said, try to get some sleep. And I remember, I, I remember sitting in the hallway after those appointments in a corner crying, thinking, is this it? This is really it? This, I can't believe this is it. This isn't going to be okay because I can't, I can't do all the things I love to do. Um, and that's when I lost hope. And I think losing hope is one of the very worst things that can happen to somebody. Um, and on top of that, I really didn't like who I felt like I was becoming because I thought I'm the whiny patient. I'm the difficult patient now. Um, and I'm, and I'm complaining when there are people who are way worse off than me. Um, so it was, it was tough. 2017 was really, really tough until, um, it sounds strange, but until I had another flare up and was validated that something was really wrong. Right. 
Right, um, right. And that gave me hope again. That made me feel like, okay, we can, we can do, now they can see it, we can do something. Um, and we did. That's when we started paperwork for infliximab and I started those infusions in January, 2018. So it's been three years now coming up and um, that's Remicade, right? Infliximab. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And that's made a big difference. Um, so I was able to get my hope back and start to get what I call my sparkle back. Well, good for you. That's awesome. Yeah. So, so you, you hadn't plateaued and you've progressed from there from 2017. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'd say now I feel, you know, the best I have in seven years, but it's still not the old me. I still can't do those big hikes and I really struggle with, with hills. Um, but I can be out there, you know, at, at one point I was walking down by the waterfront and I was, I was in this mood where I was looking around at the scenery thinking, this is fantastic. Here I am out for a walk and look at how beautiful the ocean is. And, and then somebody would pass me running and I would, and I would get mad and think, ah, but I'm not running. And so it had this proverbial kind of devil and angel on my shoulders saying it's good. No, it's not. And I, and I remember stopping to look at the ocean and just try to breathe. And I turned around and there was a memorial bench there. And it, for some reason, it just made me burst out laughing. And I thought, I'm not a bench. <laughs> we can keep going. Right. right. Yeah. yeah going. They, they haven't, they haven't put a bench beside the trail with your name on it yet. That's so, right. right. So, so you, you said you weren't running. Um, so you were, were you a runner? Were you a marathon runner? You've mentioned hiking several times. What was your sort of fitness resume? Um, so I was a runner. I had trained for a half marathon. Um, didn't actually complete it cause I injured myself, but I, I did the running, <laughs> um, uh, but mainly hiking the gym. Um, you know, we would kayak, we would cycle, we, we just explored. And that was part of the hard thing was that our spare time was outside being active. So now my, my exercise tolerance is quite low. And, you know, I, an hour is kind of the maximum. Mm -hmm. So what do we do with the whole rest of the day? If you're not going to work and you're not looking after your kids anymore because they're adults. Right. Yeah. So what, yeah, what do you do? And that's, that is, that is so tough. You and I are, are uh, in fairly similar situation, although I have been able to, to come back to work, but with the outdoors and everything. And I, and I can remember when I was on, um, I started out on 80 milligrams of prednisone. It really messed with my head. And so I, I, did you go to therapy at all? Yeah. 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 So I've been super fortunate because um, I was, I became a patient of the heart failure clinic. It's actually called the heart function clinic now, but, um, and that means that I have access to multidisciplinary care. So I've had cardiac rehab three times. I've had psychiatrists, social worker, all nurse practitioners, all trained in heart issues. Um, and so I've, I've had so much support. I don't know where I would be without all of that support, to be honest. 
do you find that you mentioned heart issues? Do these people understand sarcoidosis or is that sort of beside the point? Yeah, that's different. So yeah, they, they don't understand that as much. Um, I was referred to a sarcoid clinic in Vancouver, um, which has been great because it's given me access to a rheumatologist and a respirologist with sarcoid experience. And it gives me access to the PET scans. They're not right in BC, the PET scans are reserved for cancer patients and um, a few heart patients. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. And they do PET scans instead of MRIs? Yeah. Uh, well, for me, there's not really a choice because of the ICD. I see. Yes, of course. You've got the metal in your body, so they can't put you in the tube. Right. Uh, of course. Yeah. Um, so how, well, I wanted to go back to, cause I was, I was kind of thinking back to you were near that bench and you were walking along and you are trying to come to terms with where you are in your life and what your new life looks like. And, and I can remember telling a therapist, I really noticed the birds singing this morning, which is not the type of thing that I would normally have said. Um, uh, although since I said it out loud, I've noticed I do like the birds a lot more, but did, did you have an epiphany or anything like that along the way? I've had quite a few. Um, and, and, you know, it's interesting that you say that because I, I have a, a really, really good friend who has a chronic illness and has had for 25 years. And so she's been a huge source of support. And, and she used to say to me, you know, stop and smell the roses. And I, and I, I really started to take that to heart. And I really, I remember walking along, looking around, thinking this is what it's like when you stop and smell the roses. Look at, look at all this around me. Because I realized that everything I did had a purpose. It was, you know, I was on my bike because I was commuting or I was hiking because I was trying to set, you know, a, a personal best at this or I would, everything had a purpose. And even when we were walking, I'd be thinking ahead going, okay, so we'll be done here by whatever time I got to make dinner. And we're, so learning, it, my husband's the one that kind of pointed me at, pointed it out to me that I have to learn to do things just for the sake of doing them just for joy just and and to be in the moment yeah and that was that was pretty big that was pretty big and I, and I feel really good about it like you it's it's like well, I didn't know that I really appreciated these things or like these things and I do <laughs> yeah do you um were you a, a straight a student close <laughs> yeah I can see that. I can see that. <laughs> Highly motivated, type A, uh, always organized. You remind me of so many of the uh, women where I work at, I'm a, a news anchor. And, and so I would say 70% of the newsroom uh, are motivated females. <laughs> and yeah. they... Yeah. Uh, and they are organized to a T and they just, uh, I, I'm hearing a lot of similarities uh, in your personality and theirs. Um, but it is, it, 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 I, you people who've listened to the podcast have heard me talk about, I'm, I, I have, for whatever reason, been able to continue to bicycle. I can't run anymore because I've lost basically the, the dexterity to run, but because the pedals sort of control 
where your feet go, I can, I can ride my bike, but I've had to learn that it's just as much fun to bike at 10 miles an hour as it used to be at 20 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. And, but it's for a different reason. It's, it's, you're not trying to, to achieve that new goal, that new PR on a certain stretch of road or on a certain climb. Uh, it's just for the sake of being there. And that is, well, that was a tough pill for me to swallow. And I'm hearing the same thing from you and I've heard it from other people as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it was tough because I, I really felt like our family, our family's free time was being active. And suddenly I couldn't go on the hikes and, you know, they were all very sweet and generous and would say, no, let's do something we can all do, um, which was great. And, you know, we started to explore some things that we never would have done before. You know, we went ax throwing, we went to, you know, a, a raptors um, exhibit, or I don't really sure what you call it, but anyway, um, we did some things we wouldn't have normally done. Right. But there's this really, there's a mixture of feelings where you think, you know, I'm really sad that we can't go and do this. I'm really grateful that um, you're willing to, to work at my level. But I also feel really guilty that I'm ruining the fun. That's what I thought. I, I you know, at the time in the thick of it, I just thought I'm the one that's wrecking the family fun. Um, and and then and so, you know, eventually we found our place. I no longer feel like that. Um, I'm happy when they're willing to do my slower paced things. And sometimes they do their bigger things. And I can just feel grateful that they're doing this great thing. And that makes me feel happy. And I know that it makes my husband a little bit sad because he misses me, but um, it makes me feel good that they're doing it. And so, so we've kind of settled into it. Um, mm -hmm. And you, you learn to find that joy in what you can do. But it's a tough, it's a tough long road for sure. Yeah, that's that is so difficult. Now, so what what do you do with your days now? I assume your husband is still working, your sons have moved out of the house. What what are you doing? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it, it's taken me a while to figure that out. Um because I didn't I didn't hadn't really put focus on myself before. I'd put focus on what everyone else needed um, and being a mom and being a career woman. And so before the pandemic, I had started to take some classes, um, you know, just, just random things, quality of life in retirement, things like that, gardening, um, learning to sing. That was super fun. Um, so those were things I never would have done before. So that, that was really great. And I was starting to feel like th this is one of the things I can do. And then the pandemic hit, of course. Um, and that, that slowed down some of that stuff, but I've been able to build on my advocacy work. And that, that's been really great. You know, I, in 2014, I met a young woman at cardiac rehab who had uh, heart failure and was waiting for a transplant. Um, she's since had two transplants and she started a foundation, um, a patient led um, foundation for patients with heart failure. And so I've slowly become involved in that. 
And we have something in BC called the Patient Voices Network, which is um, an organization that organizes patients that want to get involved and improve the medical system. So I started to do those things in 2016, but um, what I discovered was that although I could go and I could do it and it would be rewarding and in my head, I would think this is exactly where, where I should spend my time, but I would come away feeling quite depleted. Um, and and I, I learned later when I, when I did an actual um, session on telling your story that when you tell it too early, it can be re-traumatizing. Um, and I had some, some trauma from my first shock back in 2014. And so, so I sort of had to slow down and try to figure out what, how adjusted to that and, and grown into it more. Um, and now I'm, now I'm starting to think about writing. I think I'm going to really enjoy writing my story out. Um, I used to really try to figure out where I fit in the world by trying to define it. And at first I thought, well, I'm a heart failure patient because the focus at the beginning was all about my heart. The sarcoid seemed to be kind of secondary because they were so concerned about keeping my heart functioning. And so I thought I'm a heart failure patient, but I don't really fit in because I don't have the typical cause. And I, everyone else is older for the most part. Um, it, it just doesn't seem like I'm a heart failure patient. And then I thought, well, I must be a sarcoidosis patient. And the more that I researched that and looked at the communities, I thought, I don't know if I'm a sarcoidosis patient because I don't have pulmonary sarcoid. So that doesn't, you know, I don't seem to fit. I don't seem to. So, so then I thought, what I am is a mental health patient. That's where I fit in. That's what okay. I am. All right. And, and it, so I sort of went with that for a little while. But you know what? I've really come to discover that I'm all those things. Uh, and, and what really drives me is that understanding that we're all complex and we're all unique. And we really need to benefit from that multidisciplinary care. I just have a really strong passion and belief that until the medical system really understands who the person is in front of them and what's happening to them and what their expectations are for quality of life, that we can't, it's really difficult to move forward. Um, so, so that's where I put my energy now is in trying to figure out how do, how do I raise awareness and lobby or advocate for multidisciplinary care and um, equal access for people. I just think those mental health supports are so important um, and so underestimated. Right. Well, um, in, in a sense, I guess you're doing it now because we'll have some reach with the podcast. And <laughs> um, yeah. So you, you mentioned you learned to sing. I'm fascinated by that. And I, I see a bunch of guitars behind uh, you. Are those your guitars, your husband's guitars, or both? <laughs> no, they're not mine. Um, in my family, everybody can play instruments except for me. Um, I'm more like the groupie. Uh, and, and my whole life, I have 
wished that I could sing. If I could be anything in the world, I would be on stage with a microphone singing. I just think that sounds amazing. And I have no ability to carry a tune, no musical bones at all in my body. Um, so this was a big leap. It was, a, it was really scary to go to a music class, um, a singing class, and it was a group. And I thought that would be slightly better than having to go one-on-one -on -one and actually have somebody truly hear me. I thought this way I might be able to hide a little bit. Uh -huh. um, it was the funnest thing I've ever done. I loved it. Really? Yeah. Did they teach you to carry a tune? Can, can, can someone be taught? Yeah. You know what? You can. It, it, I mean, it's a, it's a lot of work. It's all about the breathing, which was actually really good for me to do breathing exercises all the time. Um, there's, you know, the, the teacher used to make us spend half an hour breathing in every single class. And we were supposed to do that every day. Um, but you can, you can learn to sing. So what do you sing? Are you up there uh, doing rock and roll or country <laughs> classes? What are you doing? No. Yeah, no, you know what? I haven't been practicing. And, <laughs> but I did feel at the end of the class, I did feel like I was a little bit better. And like, I didn't have to mouth the words to O Canada anymore. I could actually sing out loud in a crowd. <laughs> That's a hard song to sing. So that was good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Canada. Um, that's all I know. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, well, well, good for you. So when your husband plays the guitar, do you sing along with him? I mean, what's what's the musical family? I only do. Uh, I only sing kind of under my breath, really quietly, or if I'm totally alone. If I'm totally alone, then I put the music on loud and sing as loud as I can. <laughs> uh -huh, I see. So you're not going to send me a, a, a recording that we can use on the podcast then? Is that what you're saying? Wow. No, sorry. No autographed albums yet. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And so you went to see a raptor display. I assume you meant like birds of prey, like hawks and eagles and that sort of thing. Yeah. 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 Okay. Interesting. I'm fascinated by the, by those too. Then back to the birds again. I've mentioned yeah. birds more times in this interview than I probably mentioned my whole life. Um, well, you know, I'm, I'm glad that you have found advocacy. I'm glad that you have begun. I don't feel like you're totally uh, settled on your new normal yet, uh, but you said you've been feeling better now than you've felt in seven years. Do you, do you feel like you're still progressing? Um, no, I feel like, I feel like I am, um, you're right, not fully settled, but a lot closer than I was seven years ago. <laughs> um, definitely able to be a lot more objective, definitely able to be a lot more accepting. Um, I know my limitations, and I know you know, I know to plan for them. I know that rest days are better than bad days. And so with the right planning, I can do bigger things. Um, I just won't do them two days in a row. Um, and so I feel like, yeah, I, I've progressed a lot. Um, it's never off, not on my mind. Um, 
I do have moments where suddenly that old competitiveness flares up, um, but I'm able to talk myself through it pretty quickly. Um, you know, I've, I've done a lot of cognitive behavior therapy sessions and, you know, mindfulness and really trying to focus on, I have the tools. I feel like I have the tools now. I may not be fully there, but I have the tools to work myself out of it. Um, so you can still use that same drive that made you want to get everything done and get back so you could cook dinner, so you could do the next thing, so you could do. So now you have some tools to where you can start uh, applying some sort of self-help. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, it, you know, my fatigue is probably the thing that feels like the biggest drawback. You know, it's it's... It's cognitive and it's physical. So I find that um, a lot of times when I'm just physically fatigued, I'm also sitting there thinking, I, I should learn something, but I don't have the energy to absorb anything. It's just all a blur in front of me. Um, but I've started to find some peace in just being in that moment. Just, you know, I can just sit and look out the window quite comfortably. <laughs> um, and it's okay. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Do you yeah. suffer what they call brain fog? Where yes. You... Yeah. 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 I definitely do. And, and that's, that's one of the things that has kind of led me to the idea of writing because I've always enjoyed reading and writing. And um, I was responsible for communications in, in my role at work. Um, so, so that part makes sense to me and it's easier to digest information that way than it is for me to um you know just to try to to have conversations and speak i find can be quite stressful sometimes because of that brain fog because i feel like i'm searching to remember a word or um or my point or and lose my train of thought <laughs> yeah yeah i i, I <laughs> all of those uh all those come uh, to me pretty quickly when you start mentioning that. That's uh, and and we've we've talked to any number of sarcoidosis patients, and that's that's the way they feel. Uh, and you know, knock on wood, it hasn't happened to me on television yet, where I'm talking live on camera. Uh, but I have to be super super focused because that you don't you don't want to be about to make a major point or or reveal a fact to the public and and you lose it. And you know, so that. <laughs> That hasn't happened, thank God. But I do find myself always searching for that word. And when you're writing, you know, you can search as long as you want till you find the word. You can even Google it if you want and find the word and then keep going, right? That's so, right. Yeah. Are you gonna are you gonna write a book? Are you gonna write your memoir or are you going to do blogging or what are you gonna do? I don't know. I don't know. I have a friend who's an author and um She's a more recent friend and, and just a month or two ago, I had said to her, I had told her my health story and she wrote to me afterwards and she said, that was really powerful the way you told me your story. Have you ever thought about writing a memoir? And I hadn't, although when I was younger, I, I loved to write um, and it got me really excited. I think it's the first thing in seven years that got me really excited and it stuck it stuck with me um and i think about it every day now um so i think it's the right thing to do um i don't know if it'll be it'll be about my 
illness journey. Um, and I think there's a lot of layers in there with, with even women's issues as, as a working professional all the way through women's health and um, you know all, quality of life and all of those things, the mental health side, the physical side, um, all the changes. I see, I now I've lost my train of thought. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, you're just talking about the various layers. Um, yeah, that you, yeah. That you might pursue. So I don't know if it'll be a, a short story, a series of articles, if anyone will ever see it. I don't know quite. I think I'm just going to write and then see where that takes me. I, I'll just share with you. Uh, I have a blog about bicycling. And so whenever my wife and I would go somewhere that uh, was reasonably interesting, I would just sit down and do a blog about it. And I'd you know, I like, I enjoy photography. So I'd take some pictures and post those. And then when sarcoidosis emerged, I started a whole series of posts about cycling with sarcoidosis. I found that to be extremely therapeutic. And uh, I wonder if that might not be something that, that might help you, whether it's hiking with sarcoidosis or being a mom with sarcoidosis or being a woman with sarcoidosis. I've heard you kind of touch on all those themes, but all of those all those seem to me like those would be a place where you could get some traction. Yeah. Yeah. Might be. I don't Might know. Might be. I, I'll, um, yeah. yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a therapist. Right I just, now I'm you know. still, busy. yeah. <laughs> right now I'm still creating chunks of time and themes and ideas. And I have, I have paper all around me. Do you really? So you're working on what, I mean, what yeah. does that look like? You yeah. said you have yeah. paper. So, so you'll sit down, you'll jot down an idea or something and, and then let that gel. I mean, what, what is, what is that? Yeah. Yeah. So I have, um, I, yeah, I really prefer pen and paper for my thinking. And huh. so I've got, um, you know, I've got, I've got a, a journal where I put some, some bigger, kind of overarching higher visionary kinds of things down and then I've got scraps of paper where I you know I'll, I'll just write down one little story or one one random thought or one key word that I really like or so I have all these pieces um plus over the years I've I've told my story many times in different ways and I have those all written out already so I've I can go down rabbit holes really, really easily. <laughs> it's going to take a bit of work for me to untangle all of these pieces of paper, but we'll get there. It might take me a while before you see my name in lights, but. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, Tracy, if you ever decide that you want to make all of that public in some way, let us know and, uh, and we'll alert the listeners here on the, on the podcast for sure. But thank you for sharing your story today. It's, it's been a journey for you. It has been. Thank you for letting me. I really appreciate being here with you. And I, I have listened to your podcasts and, and I do read through the Inspire community on Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. And, um, you know, it, it is just interesting how unique we all are. And I really appreciate the opportunity to, to chat. I feel like a zombie just feeding and stumbling. So 
Many, many thanks to Tracy for joining me here on the Sark Fighter podcast and uh, being willing to bear your soul and tell your story. It's a, it's a fantastic story. Uh, some of my takeaways from, from your situation, you do have to stop and smell the roses. And even though people say that all the time and they're trying to slow their lives down, they still go rushing by the roses. And when sarcoidosis or something else slows you down, you have to realize that the journey is the destination and the destination might be the roses. That, that might be what it's all about. And whether you want to stop and smell the roses on your way to doing something because you're so much busier uh, and have more important things to do, you have to recognize that whether it's hearing the bird song or smelling the proverbial roses or or hiking to some place where you, you you know you can just look out over the view and it's about the view and not reaching a destination uh, you have to you have to learn to accept that and Tracy has done that and that's been that's been difficult for her it's been so far a, a seven year journey but living in the moment is is something you hear a lot now, especially on social media. Everybody's trying to live in the moment. Well, sarcoidosis forces you to do that. The other thing that she's done is she's found new things that she can do. She's She's gone and taken singing lessons, and instead of a hike, she and the family will go to a museum. She mentioned you know going to see the raptors. Raptors are uh, birds of prey, by the way, eagles and hawks and falcons and that kind of thing. Um, and the other thing about Tracy, and I don't know if she realizes this about herself, but I see her as a natural storyteller. She's also organized, and so if she wants to write her memoirs or write a story where uh, it's a novel and the lead character has sarcoidosis uh, and solves a mystery, you know, whatever she wants to do, I think she can do it because, because of her approach to life. And so we certainly wish her the very, very best. And as I said, Tracy, uh, if you're listening and you do decide to commit your thoughts to paper or to the web, please let us know and, and I'll do everything I can to get it in front of the listeners to the Sark Fighter podcast. Now, um, the advice that the professional podcasters give is that uh, you ask the audience to tell somebody. So if you like this podcast, would you please just tell one other person so that uh, we can we can spread the word and and when people share these stories they can they can help as many people as possible with it uh, because that's the whole reason that we do this podcast is to uh, is to help the sarcoidosis community advance the cause and the more people who are involved the better off uh, it will be so um, please send me an email. It's in the show notes. If you uh, would like to be on the podcast, if you have any thoughts about the podcast, if you're enjoying it, uh, I can tell you that I have found somebody who is willing to come on and talk about anti-inflammatory diets, and I intend to do uh, some other uh, intend to do some other dietary related podcasts as I as I work through the foundation is helping me locate some experts on that. But uh, I just want to—I want to hear your stories, and I want to hear uh, if you've found a way to be successful in fighting this disease with something other than prednisone, uh, or the multitude of other uh, methotrexate and the long list of, of other drugs. Let me know. Let me know. Just send me an email, carlinagency at gmail.com. Also, you can follow the Sark Fighter on Instagram, and I've also got a Sark Fighter uh, Facebook page. 
and I would appreciate it if you'd stop by and, and check it out. In the meantime, we just want, again want to thank Tracy for joining me here today. And uh, Tracy, just keep listening to those birds and smelling the roses. Folks, until next time, keep fighting. Learn to suffer, you feel pain someday. Learn endurance, your strength will fade away. Dead man walking, trying to keep up the pain.